This is Comic Shenanigans, episode 190, Flashback. Marvel's Flashback. Welcome to the Comic Shenanigans podcast. This is episode 190. It's our flashback, Marvel's flashback episode. Uh, I'm your host, Adam Chapman. Um, this is, I believe, the sixth flashback episode we've had. I'm not quite sure about that. Um, basically, I, I take a look at uh, comics from the past. Uh, usually, in at least recently episodes, has been some sort of connection to me or something I remember reading at a certain period. I just kind of bring it up and... Um, I look at, uh, last time we looked at DC's One Year Later, and so I kind of went back to what it was like in 2006, I think, when that happened, when uh, all DC's books jumped forward a year after the events of Infinite Crisis, and then suddenly they had, they were all branded with this tagline of One Year Later, and it was all about, you know, where are these characters now? Uh, this time, however, I actually wanted to look at, appropriately enough for a flashback episode, uh, Marvel's flashback event, which happened in 1997. Um, and it was a, a line-wide event. Um, and I, I, from what I remember, it was kind of in the summer. It's it, The books are all July 1997 in terms of uh, the date on them. Um, and it was kind of an interesting experiment that Marvel had, which signified two things. First of all, it was, as I said, a line-wide um, crossover, but not really a crossover. is more of a branding where all the books took did a flashback story. Um, so uh, they were all minus one issues, and they went... In most cases, they had some sort of relevance to what was going on in current continuity in some way, uh, even if it was kind of minor. Um, and they kind of went into these kind of pre-origin versions of the characters. Uh, for Spider-Man, for example, he was not Spider-Man in any of them. In fact, he was just Peter Parker before he was bitten by a radioactive spider. So it's kind of an interesting um, idea for a line-wide series. We've kind of seen that with uh, the Zero issues that DC had the other year. Um, which were all kind of origin-style uh, issues. Uh, so Flashback was kind of a, a nice experiment at trying this. Uh, also, it signified the change or development of following these Flashback issues. Every single book in the Marvel stable uh, had a, what they called the new guide to the Marvel Universe, and it was a, a, a fold-out gatefold on the inside. And it would, basically would have a recap of recent elements. It was kind of like watching a TV show and having to say, previously on X-Men and tell you this is what happened on X-Men recently sometimes it wasn't necessarily happened in the previous issue but things that had happened which were relevant to what was going to, about to happen even if it had been a while since those things had actually happened uh, again very much like television shows um, it also had usually broke down a cast of characters that appeared in the book giving them a kind of a quick capsule uh, biography this was actually really helpful I mean I start as I've said before on the show I really started getting into comics around 95 that's when uh, actually, sorry, not even 95. Um, 96, I guess, was Onslaught. So, I mean, I read Age of Apocalypse when that was coming out, but it was more sporadic. That was 995. And then in 1996, we have Age of, um, the uh, Operation Zero Tolerance, which I was huge into. And that was really... Uh, fuck, no, I'm sorry. It was Onslaught. What am I even talking about? Onslaught was 96. 97 was Operation Zero Tolerance. So I was really kind of getting into the Marvel Universe. And then this flashback was an interesting experiment um, because it was kind of looking back at all these different characters and kind of having fun stories. I mean, most of them were written by the regular writers, but um, it was a, a fun experiment that kind of interrupted every comic that month. Uh, and then the next month you had these new gatefold covers. And it, to me, has always been a clear break uh, what's interesting, though, is that when I actually looked at 
I have a lot of these now. In fact, I think I have almost all of them because uh, I picked them up years ago. I went to university and they had like this closing sale for this store and I think all of them had like little dots on them or whatever and they weren't like mint but I got them like really cheap like maybe a quarter an issue or something um and it's nice to kind of have them all now uh and now to look back over them now I'm not going to talk about all of them because there are a lot um but I did want to kind of touch on a few now a lot of titles did get the obviously the flashbacks um treatment because that's a lot of books that Marvel was publishing at the time which include the following uh, Alpha Flight Amazing Spider-Man Cable Daredevil Deadpool Elektra Excalibur Generation X Ghost Rider Incredible Hulk Kazar Sensational Spider-Man Silver Surfer Spectacular Spider-Man Spider-Man Uncanny X-Men The Thunderbolts Untold Tales of Spider-Man Venom Wolverine X-Factor X-Force X-Man and X-Men man there's a lot of (laughs) X-Books Um, so I'm going to talk about some of them. I'm just giving my impressions of what I remember of them and, and if they're really even good comics at all. Uh, first one I kind of want to look at is uh, I have actually only recently read this one. I think this was one of the few that I didn't pick up during that sale years ago. So it's only recently I've been able to have a chance to read it. And that's Alpha Flight Minus One. And I'm not sure or not, but it sounds like that this is actually before the new Alpha Flight books started around this time period. Um, so there actually wasn't even an Alpha Flight book. I don't think so, anyway. Uh, Steven Siegel wrote this, Anthony Wynn on pencils. What was a common theme with all these issues is that, for the most part, you had a Stanley character caricature show up in very Stanley form and basically you know, interrupt the flow of the story and, uh, and kind of introduce the idea that we're getting this flashback story. Um, this is both works well in some cases, but also is quite annoying. Just because they play it so bombastic, which, I mean, is kind of Stanley's persona, obviously. But it goes, it does start to wear a little thin when you read a lot of these. Um, also, the amount of page count devoted to him interrupting the story and then setting it up feels a little intrusive as well. Like, you could have had more pages of the actual story as opposed to just this filler with Stanley. Um, and, so I mean, so that's a little frustrating. The Alpha Flight one, I got, it's something I've only recently read. Um, kind of a, an interesting story. I, I do love the artwork. Um, I, I think this was kind of as a predecessor to the Alpha Flight book you'd end up getting by, I believe, Siegel. Um, but it's interesting that they even did a, fl- a flashback issue. Uh, in fact, I believe at the beginning of the issue, Stanley even says, um, since this is Marvel's flashback month, our first Alpha Flight issue in four years actually takes place in the past. It's just an interesting perspective on that. Um, we have Amazing Spider-Man minus one. I always remember this cover. It's uh, Peter Parker as the nerdy Peter Parker in Captain America's kind of costume or really on his body with the triangle shield running forward and it's Peter Parker reading comics. Uh, again, I don't think I owned any of these when I was actually this age, which is interesting because I remember it happening. I remember reading some of them. I don't remember ever having owned them, which is so weird. Like, why did I take a month off reading comics? Maybe it's because it was minus issues and I was like, oh, it doesn't matter. Yeah, I've never really been able to remember exactly what my thinking was at this point in time. Uh, all these, a lot of these covers do have kind of a an old school sensibility to it. I mean, even looking at the Alpha Flight minus one, which you can see on Comics.org and any other place online, really, you just Google it. Um, very old school in terms of you know, there's a lot of kind of stuff happening on the cover. There's you know, starring these characters, and there's a marriage of this character, and it's just kind of interesting. Um, Again, very old school sensibility on the covers, especially with the Amazing Spider-Man one. 
Um, so it's all about, you know, the secrets of Peter Parker are revealed. Um, you know, the first page, you have, again, another Stanley uh, portion, although he's really on there for maybe a page and a third or, or less. And then you get into this fun story. Now, this is one of, the, one of the issues I wanted to talk about. I read this this morning, again, in preparation for the episode. And it's actually a lot of fun. It's written by Tom DeFalco, who was writing the book at the time. Uh, I'm trying to remember where this would takes place. I feel like this takes place around just before 425. Um, so Joe Bennett is doing the artwork at the time. He's just killing it. You got a, a fair bit of the issue has Peter Parker finding all these comics in the Golden Age comics in his uh, his attic. Uh, ben is encouraging him to read them. And then we get a lot of kind of interesting stories that are totally independent of this. Uh, what's interesting is that I think there's a few stories I've read today, and it looks like Namor shows up in a bunch of them. Um, although he's the amnesiac Namor with the beard, and who doesn't know who he is. But one of the main elements of the story is you have um, uh, Jake Conover and speaking with uh, Phil Sheldon, who Phil Sheldon is, is, of course, the protagonist from Marvels by uh, Kurt Busiek and Alex Ross. And you have him talking with Jake Conover, who is, you know, uh, he was a character who was around often. Uh, you have uh, Don Fortunato is kind of being rebuilt up, and we're seeing more of when he first left New York in this issue. Also, we have this, uh, this, bo- this boss who, when I look at it now, I mean, if I had read this years ago, I wouldn't have understood the significance of this moment here where Kingpin murders the previous kind of quote-unquote Kingpin, which there have been retroactive continuity issues where this doesn't actually make sense anymore because although it's probably one of my favorite stories in that Daredevil Man Without Fear by Frank Miller and John Meter Jr. has this exact sequence take place that we see in this issue where Kingpin cracks this former uh, um, Kingpin's neck and takes over control. Uh, in the was it Daredevil, the Golden Age arc by Brian Michael Bendis, they kind of insinuate that there was actually a previous boss before Kingpin, and that Kingpin that the, this other guy doesn't really exist. Uh, but I like that at this time, because it was the '90s and Man Without Fear was relatively recent, we see this character used by DeFalco quite well. We also get to see Jake Conover how he kind of gets embroiled in what's going on with Don Fortunato, uh, how he kind of gets scared off of the crime beat. Uh, it's interesting too because eventually DeFalco would use, I believe it was still by DeFalco at that point when um, he would end up showing that Jacob Conover had actually become a future version of the Rose and that he really got that the ability to be the Rose because of Don Fortunato and we see here that he's basically eventually is able to call in a chit from Don Fortunato because uh, he owes him. Uh, it's a it's a fun story, but then we have the uh, the last few pages are by. Um, who are they even by? Tom DeFalco and Pat O'Leaf, uh, who obviously would become extremely well-known later on for working on um, MC2 or Spider-Girl together. Pat O'Leaf at this time had been doing Untold Tales of Spider-Man, so seeing his artwork in a regular Spider-Man issue is pretty special. Um, really dug this. Um, one of the older flashback stories I read was Cable, which uh, is very different because I think at the time I hadn't quite jumped on board Cable yet. Um, although you had the artist uh, Ledron had started taking over the book and he had a very different take on the pencils for, for uh, Cable. 
Um, James Robinson, interestingly enough, is the writer at the time for this issue. Um, I actually really like LeDron's stuff. I mean, I, at the time, I don't think I liked it as much. I remember when I started reading Cable full-time, it was around issue, I think, 63 or something, uh, or thereabouts. And it was probably in the kind of lead-up or build-up to... It was probably 1999. It was leading up to the kind of the 12-storyline, which would happen in issue 75 of Cable. And LeDron has a very Kirby-esque style, uh, which as a kid, I don't think I appreciated it or enjoyed it nearly as much as I do now. Um, the way the technology looks, I mean, it kind of reminds me of John Romita Jr. in terms of it kind of being messy for messy's sake, but also having a little bit of the, the Kirby-esque power. Um, and it's kind of an interesting story of what happens when Cable first gets to uh, this time. This time, Although I don't necessarily think it makes a lot of sense because the first experiences of Cable being in our timeline and meeting up with Xavier, etc., have never been that well discussed as far as I remember. And this was trying to kind of add more context to Cable's first appearance in the current timeline, how he meets up with Marvin Taggart, etc. And also, I always, thought, I always thought this part was actually really interesting and cool, is that the, the, the concept that Cable's arrival in our timeline is what woke up Apocalypse and kind of started everything going forward from what would end up affecting Cable's time period. That's actually a really cool concept. Um, that if it wasn't for Cable going back in time, it couldn't have, you know, nothing could have started in the first place. Very much um, a conundrum and a paradox, but it's part of that. That's the type of thing that I love about time travel stories when they're done correctly. Or not correctly, but they're trying to be a little bit smarter, smarter about it and have a little bit more intelligence. Uh, I really love that issue of Cable. Uh, the Daredevil issue, um, it's written by, I believe, Joe Kelly. But what's interesting about it is more the artwork. Uh, the artwork is by Gene the Dean Colan, and it's it's a very old school kind of looking comic. Uh, very sharp artwork by Colan. The story leaves a little bit to be desired. It's not Kelly's best, um, but I mean, it, if you look at this, like it just it looks gorgeous. Um, really, really strong Colan artwork. Um, other ones I wanted to look up, take a look at. Do you remember when Electra was like a flat-out hero, more or less? That's what this version of Electra was. Um, if you look at the cover, too, it's interesting. It's very early Mike Diodato Jr. doesn't look anything like his work. If you, check up, if you look up Electra minus one, you'll see what I'm talking about. Um, the cover, again, you, sorry, the interior, you once again have more of um, uh, Stan Lee just kind of being inserted. Although here I think it's only one page. It's a flashback story to... Matt Murdock and uh, Electra's kind of love story. It's written by Peter Milligan, artwork by Mike Diodato Jr., who again does an amazing job. Um, it's kind of showing how Electra deals with what happens to her father, kind of abandoning Matt Murdock and then meeting up with Stick and and really beginning her training and seeing kind of how that goes. What's interesting about this is that even though this is with after Man Without Fear had already come out and had this much more sexualized and almost not villainous, but definitely almost psychotic version of Electra. Um, this is a much more heroic version of Electra and feels more in tune with how the character was originally portrayed as kind of being this not innocent, well, pretty innocent character who then gets very majorly affected by something uh, in her past when it's the death of her father and how it kind of railroads her entire life. And the fact that it's. Our work by Mike Diodato is nothing short of like breathtaking. 
Uh, then we have Excalibur minus one. This is a, an issue that the cover reminds me a lot of, I think it's like X-Men 113 or something like that, uh, where you had uh, Mesmero had kind of controlled, or was it Arcade? I can't remember, but anyways, the X-Men were kind of utilized in a, in a kind of a, a circus mentality. Here you got Ben Rab writing it with artwork by Rob Haynes and Casey Jones on pencils. Um, this really, as I said, some of the books had a little bit more to do with current continuity or kind of adding layers. This one didn't, but you definitely, like, you had Belasco, Nightcrawler, and Amanda Sefton, um, a little bit more swashbuckly. Um, it's kind of interesting. It, it, I liked it. Um, although it's kind of, again, a weird book because at the time Excalibur didn't feel like this. So this kind of felt like it was a, a nice happy jaunt because Excalibur hadn't been that happy in that recent time. Then we have Generation X minus one. Holy crap. If you're talking about like a book that just feels so different tonally from anything that exists today. I mean, you open the issue, you have a very, you have the kind of a cliffhanger-ish uh, thing happening at the end of the previous issue. And then you think you see Chamber, but it's really Stan Lee again. And he introduces, and he has like three pages here to introduce the main concept. And then you have a very young Emma Frost, which doesn't feel anything like the Emma Frost we know today. Especially because she's supposed to be such a biting character. And here, it's she's a much more, I don't want to say fallible, but she's a more vulnerable character. And she's still kind of utilizing her abilities and isn't quite sure how to use them yet. She's kind of living on the streets, more or less. Um, she gets saved by a dark beast at one point. Like, there's some certain continuity issues here as to how the people might remember this. Um, he has an interaction with um, uh, uh, Sean Cassidy at one point. Harry Leland is here and has a first kind of interaction with Emma Frost. It doesn't feel like it really fits into continuity at all. It's a fun little story. Uh, the artwork is fantastic. Um, it's just really fun stuff by um, Bacallo. Uh, and But Lobdell's script leaves a lot to be desired in this particular issue. Uh, one of the first flashback issues I remember reading was Ghost Rider. And uh, it's written by Ivan Velez Jr. with artwork by Javier Salteres. And I don't really know this creative team at all. It has a very distinctive look to it, though. I mean, it, it kind of feels like it, it meets a certain house style that was evident in a lot of these flashback issues in terms of their visual appearance. Um, we have a different version of Ghost Rider that we hadn't really seen before. Um, again, I don't think it's ever really come up anywhere else, and so it kind of felt like one of those flashback issues that didn't need to happen because it didn't really have a long-term impact on the characters. Unlike Incredible Hulk minus one, where you have it written by Peter David, Arbor by Adam Kubert, and again, you probably have, I think, four or five, I think six pages before we actually get into the flashback portions, which is way too long, because it means the actual flashback issue is super short. Um, so, we, But it's an interesting story, because it, it, it builds on a lot of the issues with uh, Bruce Banner and his father. Um that being said, there's a lot of... St Actually, there's more Stanley in this issue than I remember there being. He's just in and out, in and out of the issue. But because it's Peter David, I think it works better. Um, and the artwork by Adam Kubert is just gorgeous. And showing the, the kind of differences between um, Bruce and his father and seeing what happens to his father is kind of startling. And because it's the main character... Sorry, not the main character. It's the main writer of Hulk for quite a long time. It feels like it matters more. It feels like... It has a certain heft to it. Like this, this is a comic book that matters, and it adds a lot of depth and 
to a pre-existing relationship, which, which was already pretty deep and already had a lot of depth to it. So uh, if you're going to read any of these flashback issues, I think Hulk is definitely one of the ones you would want to seek out. Uh, Kazar is uh, written by, I believe, Mark Wade. I want to say Mark Wade. I'm trying to find who is actually the writer of this book. Um, maybe I won't find it. Um, it's not the best issue of Kazar, which is saying something. Again, you have a lot of flashback, or I guess just two issues of flashback, and then we can get to see more of how Kevin Plunder became Kazar. Um, again, it's probably one of the weaker flashback issues. The art isn't that great either. Uh, it feels like it just kind of goes on too long, and um, I mean, it's, it's not, not too special. It's written by Mark Wade, Todd DeSago, or sorry, they did the plot with Andy Joseph Fowitz. And Todd DeZago on script, and then John Cassidy on art. Holy crap, really? This is not what I expect from John Cassidy. I mean, the inks are really light, and I just think some of the characters aren't that well portrayed. And you could, there's, there's a long way to go before this becomes the Cassidy we know of, or at least are used to seeing these days. I just actually want to apologize. My voice is going in and out. This episode is a little bit hoarser than normal, and I've been losing it over the last few days, so I apologize if it's not as easy to listen as normal. Uh, next up is Sensational Spider-Man number one. Um, I, I, it's written by Todd DeZago again with Mike Waringo on, on uh, illustration, and he really captures the fun of this issue. Uh, Peter and uh, his Uncle Ben end up kind of uh, messing with some monsters here, and Zax is in it. Um, I just thought it was a lot of fun, and it turns out it's just a dream. But up until that point, like it's played pretty straight, and um, it's a pretty cool kind of action issue. And then I like that um, they kind of draw it back to the the idea that, of the comic books, and that because he's been reading these comic books, that you know he shouldn't be using those because maybe though some of the monster comics gave him these bad dreams. But it's really fun, and Mike Waringo's artwork is what really sells it. Dezago's script is alright, but it's really Mike Waringo who really nails the, the overall kind of fun, comic booky feel of it. Uh, Silver Surfer, I don't remember reading it at all. It's by Demetrius and Ron Garney, which is actually a pretty good creative team, but unfortunately I don't remember this issue at all, so I won't actually speak about it. Uh, Spectacular Spider-Man number minus one. Uh, this, again, um, I love where this book was in the, at this point in time. I love the artwork by Luke Ross and Dan Green. Uh, Demetrius was doing a great job with this and this issue is really a focus on Flash Thompson, his family life and seeing how difficult it was for Flash and that although he you know, was a bit of a bully and kind of a dick that there there was a reason for that and seeing kind of his early interactions with Peter Parker as well um, it's really, really good and uh, I'm going to give it, if I had to rate it, I'd give it like an 8 or 9 like it's a very solid issue it's, it's Demetrius doing a lot of uh, character study on Flash Thompson, what really made Flash Thompson kick, as well as a young Peter Parker. And the artwork, as I said, by uh, uh, Luke Ross is just fantastic. I really enjoy it. And uh, next up is Spider-Man minus one. Let's talk about great artists. Uh, this has got issue artwork by Dan Fraga, who I'm not usually a huge fan of, and Howard Mackey wrote it, but I actually thought Howard Mackey did a great job, uh, and Fraga's artwork is brilliant. I mean, really... Uh, building the prior relationship between Norman Osborn, oops, sorry, uh, Arthur Stacy and George Stacy, and kind of the the choices that these men were making at this point in time, this kind of prototype goblin. Um, we're seeing 
kind of the what makes these two brothers different between George and Arthur, uh, the decisions they make, um, dealing with this kind of goblin-esque character, what uh, Norman Osborn's involved with, and how his interactions with Arthur would eventually, you know, kind of reverberate through current continuity as well. And this is one of the ones where it means more to because of what was going on at that time. Same to be said for Spectacular Spider-Man, actually, because there was a lot of development going on with uh, Flash Thompson, him, him kind of getting his life together, and uh, dealing with previously being an alcoholic. And then in Spider-Man, you had Arthur Stacy, was often being used by Howard Porter, sorry, Howard Porter, Howard Mackey. So seeing um, a story which kind of illuminated not only what was going on with Norman Osborn at this time, but also the supporting players in George and Arthur Stacy was actually really uh, well done and quite welcome. Uh, next up on the list today is Uncanny X-Men minus one. This was one of the ones where I don't think I read it at the time, and looking at it now. Uh, it's kind of an, it's definitely an interesting issue. Uh, the artwork on the covers by Ladron, who again at the time I didn't really care for, so it kind of kept me away from it. And um, and then it's written by Scott Lovedell, but then you got Brian Hitch on pencils. And if you look at this, I think you'd be I mean you can see the beginnings of, of Brian Hitch. But again, Lovedell uses so many pages for uh, these flash or no, these intro pages for um, Stanley to kind of intro the issue that it just takes feels like it takes forever to kind of get going, uh, which is really unfortunate. Um, Rachel Summers is here. She gets involved with uh, an early version of Master Mold. It's kind of an interesting flashback story with Trask and kind of seeing, uh, I believe Sanctity was in here. And so there's a lot of connections to what was going on in current continuity, especially at the very end. You have these hints towards the upcoming storyline of the 12 which wouldn't actually conclude for another two and a half years and by the time it did would have a lot less to do with what we thought we were going to get based on this particular um, issue or just where they've been developing the story at that point probably one of my favorite flashback issues is the Thunderbolts um, just because I think it was just a cool concept and they're still relatively early in that series so we're seeing flashbacks to the early days of Baron Zemo, both Heinrich and Helmut, and kind of seeing how uh, Helmut's kind of formative years, we're also seeing formative years for Carla Soffen, back when um, she's at um, I guess a convention where um, is it a convention or a convocation, but we see Leonard Sampson, or an earlier version of him, and we're starting to see Carla Soffen and how she is kind of a, a master manipulatress if that's even a word uh, we have the youngest version of Melissa Gold as a uh, songbird and her troubled family life and how she ends up taking on the name Mimi, which would eventually become the Screaming Mimi. Uh, we also see Abner Jenkins and how he's treated at work and how he eventually would start developing the beetle armor. Um, and also we see the kind of very young version of Halei Takahama who became Jolt eventually. We see an early version of um, Abner, not Abner, um, P. Nor Norbert Ebersol, uh, otherwise known as the Fixer. We also see, once again, a Namor with a beard getting his ass kicked, uh, which seems to be happening a lot in this issue, or in this month. And uh, I also, it was a really strong portrayal of who the Thunderbolts would end up being. Possibly the strongest portrayal is for Heinrich, as we see a lot of his development and uh, how he treats Helmet and how Helmet will eventually become the Zemo we all know and kind of love and also hate, depending on who's writing him and how villainous he may or may not be. Uh, next up, 
as we take a look, we have Untold Tales of Spider-Man. This is by Roger Stern and penciled by none other than John Romita Sr., who I thought did a fantastic job. Um, really captures the kind of Silver Age fun of the issue. Uh, it's a great issue of you know Richard and Mary Parker kind of becoming these secret agents. They end up teaming up with a very younger, much younger version of, Lo- of Logan. Um, we find out, you know, how eventually at the end of the issue uh, she gets pregnant. Uh, I thought this was just a fantastic issue. Roger Stern is one of the masters of the medium. And when it comes to Spider-Man, he can almost do no wrong. And uh, I absolutely love that issue. Um, there's Venom Seed of Darkness. Uh, I remember li- looking through this and thinking it was not very good uh, the first time. The second time I liked it more. Um, it was a, kind of an interesting Eddie Brock story by Len Kaminsky with artwork by James Fry. Not the greatest, kind of a weird story with kind of this gooey monster, which obviously has similarities to the goo monster, which eventually eventually have a very big part to play in Eddie Brock's life. Um, not the best issue I've ever read, but uh, some interesting concepts here. But the cover definitely kind of makes you think of an old pulp book and not a very good one by the cover. Uh, Wolverine, uh, again, I, I love these, some of these covers. Uh, it's very old school. Wolfie faces off with the most savage villain of all time, co-starring Nick Fury, Secret Agent Supreme, and Carol Danvers, Super Spy. And you have Sabretooth on the cover. Uh, it's written by Larry Hama, who had a long run on Wolverine. And you also have Carrie Nord on art. And he does just a, a really nice portrayal. It's very clean artwork. Um, and kind of seeing how Wolverine and Sabretooth kind of go at it here. Uh, how Carol Danvers and Nick Fury are worked into the story. Uh, as well as Black Widow, um, I just I personally just found it to be a lot of fun, and which is what a lot of these stories were. They were kind of fun, uh, just like in, as the word says, flashback stories. Uh, X Factor is a, a very young version of Havoc here. Uh, let's see who wrote this. Even it's written by uh, Howard Mackey, artwork by Jeff Matsuda, who has a very distinctive style. This is actually I don't remember this one very well at all. I remember pieces, bits and pieces of it, and the fact that Sinister's here, but not much else. I didn't find it that to be that memorable. Uh, X Force, kind of the same thing. It's kind of interesting to, though to see the Pirate Star Brothers together, because uh, usually you don't, because one of them's been dead since like the seventies. Uh, written by John Francis Moore and artwork by Adam Polina, with uh, a lot of anchors: uh, Mark Morales, John Holderidge, and Al Milgram. Um, that's a lot of anchors. Uh, I was never a big fan of Polina's art in this um, in this era, and I don't think I've ever actually read the entirety of the issue just because I wasn't a big fan of the art, and the story left a lot to be desired, and I just didn't care much about the characters. Um, X-Man I did enjoy, although it felt a bit of a retroactive story. It's by Terry Cavanaugh with artwork by the Rocketin' Roger Cruz, as he's credited here, who actually de- delivers quite, quite good artwork, and... Roger Cruz at this point had elevated his style and had become more than just a clone of uh, Joe Mad. It still had elements of Joe Mad in there, but it wasn't just Joe Mad. Um, and I thought it was just a very strong story of Mr. Sinister, a very particular version of Mr. Sinister, kind of learning just how powerful uh, Nathan Gray is and, and was. Um, and last up is the one I kind of remember reading maybe around the time when it actually came out. And I was like, I don't need to read this. Who cares? And now I regret it. Um, it's by Scott LaBelle with artwork by, by Carlos Pacheco. Some of the strongest Pacheco artwork I've seen. I mean, his work on this era of X-Men was fantastic. Um, it's a cool flashback story with Magneto and Xavier. Xavier kind of dealing with... Um, 
he's feelings towards Magneto and that eventually they're going to be these 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 enemies Amelia Voigt is involved as well um, it's kind of an interesting look at what could happen in the future also the issue the pages with um, the Stan Lee parts were a lot kind of more fun here because the idea that you know he created them and then there were so many and he doesn't even know who they are anymore and there's good mutants bad mutants all that it's kind of fun Anyways, that is our look at a ton of flashback issues. I actually didn't mean to talk about that many. Instead, I went through the entire list and just, just kind of went through it. So, um, What's interesting is that because of when it was published, you'll notice there was no Iron Man flashback because it was in the middle of um, the Heroes Reborn universe. So you had no, no Fantastic Four, no Avengers, no Iron Man, no Hulk, sorry, no um, Thor. Uh, none of those characters that were involved in the Heroes Reborn were actually involved in Flashback because they were ha- they were um, published and kind of done through a, a separate a separate kind of house at the time. And it's interesting to look back at that and see that division. Anyways, that is our episode. Thank you for joining me for episode 190. It's, this has been the Flashback on Marvel's Flashback episode. Uh, our next episode, uh, 191, will be our reviews episode, probably coming out on Monday or Tuesday. Uh, after that, we have issue, sorry, episode 192 coming out next Thursday or Friday, which will be our um, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles episode. Although it's possible, I might just, I'm, as I speak, this is the 9th of August. I might put it out on the 12th of August just because that is the one-year anniversary of the podcast. And I kind of want something out that day. Uh, after that, we have episode 194, which will be our Talk and Heroclix episode. It's been almost two months since we've had one, so we're finally going to have another one. As uh, I get together with, hopefully, uh, Leonor Lana and uh, Nathan Strzok and I pray Tom Kerr but if he gets this message if he gets any message from me I'm going to send a carrier pigeon telling him we would love to have him on the podcast uh, but ep- that's what episode 194 will be looking at the new sec which is Guardians of the Galaxy episode 196 and 198 are quite set in stone yet although one of them might be a solicitations episode although I'm considering maybe purging those and not uh, doing them any longer um, but I haven't really made a final decision on that yet and then uh, after that, we have episode 200, which we'll actually be recording in about two weeks' time. So if you have any ideas for what you'd like to hear on that episode 200, please email us at comicshenanigans at gmail.com and let us know. Or post in the HC Realms threads that we post these episodes in as well. You can also rate and review us on iTunes and like us on Facebook. And please subscribe to us on iTunes as well. Thank you for joining me for episode 190. I have been Adam Chapman, and we will see you next time. Bye-bye.